，鬼岛之音。Ghost Island Media. Excuse me, do you have a minute for um your savior, Plankton? Plankton are the supreme being that grants all life on Earth the ability to breathe oxygen. I think they're really important, and you're gonna hear about it now with my guest, Dr. Enrique Sala. Everybody at home should have a shrine on plankton because without them, there would be no us. Hi, I'm Nature Nate, and this is Waste Not, Why Not, a podcast on how not to save the environment and also sustainability science. Today, I'm going to talk with Dr. Enrique Sala, legendary ocean man, ecologist, conservationist, marine biologist, and co-founder of the Plankton Church. But we'll get to that later. He has a new book coming out called *The Nature of Nature: Why We Need the Wild*. This is an important new book of his that lays out a compelling argument that nature matters, and that if we mess it up, at the very least, we're going to live extremely terrible lives. It's not your typical environmental conservation book. If you could just synthesize ecology into a book, it would be *The Nature of Nature*. So, before we get into the book, and before we get into my conversation with Dr. Sala, who is Dr. Sala? Now, a little bit of Nature Nate backstory. I first heard Dr. Sala speak at the first ever Economist Ocean Summit in Half Moon Bay. It's near San Francisco, and at least at the time, this was a particularly important event for ocean conservation because I feel like it was one of the first cool ocean conferences. The overall thesis there was they were talking about how to protect large areas of the ocean. Previously, a lot of marine protection and a lot of protected areas in general had been about sort of small places. This was ambitious. This was saying, "Let's go big and not go home." This event, in many ways, I feel like started to bring together a new group of ocean voices. And I saw Enrique speak, and I remember him being very cool. I also met Jane Lubchenco at that event. We spoke with her on episode 24, so that's a nice compliment to this episode if you haven't listened. The other connection is San Diego, and the most important thing about San Diego is actually the Scripps Institute of Oceanography, or just Scripps. Scripps is the most famous research center on oceanography, fishes, ocean sciences, whales, undersea robots, climate change, bone worms. They got it all. New discoveries. It's amazing. And you know, young Nate really looked up to Scripps. I didn't go there as a student, but I was like a young ocean nerd, and I also worked at Birch Aquarium, which is affiliated with Scripps. So I was really living that ocean life, and it was just sort of like my ocean Hogwarts. And it turns out, actually, that Dr. Sala was a professor at Scripps from 2000 to 2007, which is the same time that I was going there. I mean, you know, I'll just let him say it in his own words. I used to be a professor at the University of California, studying the impacts of humans in the ocean, impacts of fishing and global warming. And one day, I realized that I was just writing the obituary of the ocean. In the first part of his career, he was an ocean scientist. In the second part of his career, he's an ocean conservationist, working with NGOs, working with the media, working with foundations, working with governments. And now he wrote a book. He wanted to write a book that summarizes all the experiences that he's had in his life and try and synthesize all this ecological knowledge so that he could give people an easy resource for them to reference and understand how beautiful and complex the natural world is. Nature is a wondrous machine that we simply cannot replicate with our own technology. We can't just, you know, make. Oxygen generation machines. We can't purify water the same way that a mangrove does. And once nature's ruined, once we ruin it, we actually are ruining ourselves. This is not just some selfless charity. Protecting the environment is a matter of survival. From microorganisms to corals to islands, these unimaginably complex systems that have developed over three billion years is what allows us to continue to exist on starship Earth. And that's what Dr. Sala's book argues. 
And that's what we're going to talk with him about today. All right. Play the tape. Hi, Dr. Sala. I think fans of the ocean or National Geographic might know you already, but um, how would you introduce yourself to someone who is keen to care about the world, but maybe only just started caring in the last year or so? Hello, Nate. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I am a recovering academic. I used to be a professor at the University of California studying the impacts of humans in the ocean, impacts of fishing and global warming. And one day I realized that I was just writing the obituary of the ocean. That was, that was painful. I read that in your book and I felt the same way. I used to be, in air quotes, an ecologist. What made you kind of switch from being an academic to what you are now? I really loved academia and I had a fantastic group of colleagues at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in, in California. But I felt like the doctor who's telling the patient how she's going to die with excruciating detail but not offering a cure. So I decided to quit and work on the cure full-time. This is why for the last 12 years I've been working with a great team, National Geographic Pristine Seas, to help to create marine reserves to help to protect some of the last wild places in the ocean. You know, let's go back to the cure, because you said the patient is sick and the world is the patient. What is the earth sick with? You know, a cold? Is it a flu? Is it cancer? How bad is the earth doing right now for people who might not have a clear idea? Unfortunately, I think it's all of the above. <laughs> oh, God. You know, the, the earth is really our mother. We could not live outside of this planet. This is the only place in the foreseeable future for humanity to live, period. Find me another place right now, right? Everything we need to survive, everything. The oxygen we breathe, the clean water we drink, the every morsel of food we put in our mouths. Everything depends on the work of other species. But we are systematically destroying many species and the ecosystems that they form so we are actually diminishing the ability of Earth to provide for us. Right, and it's like that metaphor where you're just unscrewing screws on a plane and you're never sure which screw is going to be the one that makes the plane fall apart, right? We're just sort of tinkering with our environment. And I think in your book, you begin with talking about the biosphere. You know, there is one living layer covering the planet. It's very thin, right? It's what we call the biosphere. And it goes from four miles underground where we can find microbes living off rocks all the way up to the clouds where there are bacteria living in them. It's crazy. There's bacteria in the clouds. Wow. There are bacteria everywhere and there are viruses everywhere. And I think that we don't need to go on crazy scientific explanations. I think right now everybody should know that we are all connected and we all depend on each other and other creatures. This COVID-19 pandemic has shown it very clearly, I believe. Everybody has been on lockdown, a different severity. Everybody's livelihoods has been affected in some way. Some people have died. Some people are still sick. Some people have lost their jobs. The International Monetary Fund estimates that the cost of this pandemic is going to be $9 trillion. Wow. And why did that happen? Because somebody got in touch with a wild animal and a virus spilled over from the animal to a person. It only takes one person being in touch with one wild animal to create a pandemic of extraordinary proportions. So that thinking of, well, I'm isolated in my house or my rich country, uh-uh. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. The health, the well-being 
of the richest person on the planet. Today, these days, is dependent on the poorest person, even in the poorest country of the world. Online, I've seen a lot of conservationists talking about how if we want to end pandemics, we need to protect nature. Is that something you're kind of getting at as well? Like, is there a link between habitat destruction and the spread of infectious diseases? Yes, that's uh, what the science is telling us. Absolutely. Today is COVID-19. Before it was SARS, MERS, Ebola, HIV. There are so many diseases that jump from animals to humans because we have destroyed their habitats. We are getting closer to them. We are enhancing the growth of species that are used to humans. They can do well in our present, like rats, for example. And also we are trading wildlife like commodities all around the world. So is this why you wanted to write this book now? I mean, I, I guess you've probably been writing it for a while, but why, why did you want to come out with this book now? Is this, is this the right time to tell the story again, remind people of their connection to nature? It was total serendipity. You know, of course, I didn't predict COVID-19. <laughs> I wrote the book last year because I wanted to share everything I had learned for the last 30 years about how nature works. We cannot recreate an ecosystem to keep us alive. Right? You mm. see the movie, The Martian, where Matt Damon is culturing potatoes using his own poop as fertilizer. <laughs> right. It's a really cool Hollywood story, but we do not have the ability to self-support humans. Mm. Right? So how is it possible that nine million species of plants and animals and a trillion different types of microbes coexist, interact, and it works? It works. You know, there's been life for three and a half billion years on this planet. So I wanted to show this sense of awe and wonder of how nature works. How do species interact to make this planet such a wonderful place? With the hope that if you understand, then you say, wow, this is an incredible machine. You know, let's not tamper with it. This is our life support system. But then COVID happened. Right. And, and what do you think about, you know, the impact that coronavirus has had on, let's just say, our destruction of the planet? I know in kind of the beginning of the coronavirus, people were saying, oh, nature is healing, nature is getting better. But now as time has gone on, you know, the factories are still operating, there's still coal, there's still oil, there's still extraction going on. It's not this, the silver lining that people thought was there might have just been a flash of light. I think you're right. The respite for nature was a little too short. And, you know, it happened for the wrong reasons. Right. We shouldn't be forced to stay home to give a break to nature. And everybody was so excited to see the mountain lion in the streets of Santiago, Chile. Mm. Dolphins and even a humpback whale swimming inside a marina. This is a very strong message, I think, from nature. Nature is telling us, you humans, look how fast I can respond. Look how much I can give you if you just give me some space. Mm. And this is what we have seen in protected areas, in areas that are protected from hunting, mining, drilling, fishing. Life comes back. And the fact that nature responded so quickly also made people so happy because I think many people forgot that we do need nature for our mental health too. And, you know, and having this romantic idea of, wow, you know, the planet is coming back. It was too short-lived for a significant response, but I think it's a very, very strong signal about our relationship with nature. A point you make in the book is you say, uh, it's important to acknowledge that every human society realizes its own cultural and ecological succession. There is no single climax for human societies. 
but many, just as not every ecosystem on land, would develop into a forest. It sounds like you're saying here that you know we don't need to optimize our society to make these super mega cities full of all this consumption and development. And maybe you could look at coronavirus as a way of saying, okay, maybe there's an alternative way to live. Is that kind of the point you're getting at here? Because nature, there's no right or wrong way to be an ecosystem, right? You know, if you're a desert, that's just as valuable as being a tundra as a rainforest. You don't find forests everywhere or not everything is a wetland, right? Right. Then why do governments have make us believe in this myth that human progress is economic growth, not prosperity and happiness, growth, just for mm. the sake of growth, right? It's this modern golden idol that we have told to worship. And not everything has to become a big city. I don't think that cities and industrial production and consumption is the end goal of society. It is uh, very convenient for those who are driven by greed and power. But what these people are doing is like they are at the casino of the Titanic trying mm. to make as much money as possible after hitting the iceberg. And ironically, we're running out of icebergs, right? And glaciers, those are retreating at, at an alarming rate. That's true too. You know, it's very difficult before you and I were talking about having a light conversation about the ocean, but... <laughs> I guess whenever you say coronavirus, it just gets kind of heavy immediately, yeah. What gives you hope? What keeps you going in these, you know, in, in kind of the peak of economic uh, acceleration and, and distraction? Yeah, it's difficult to be cheerful and optimistic when you are a conservationist. <laughs> but there are two things that give me hope. One, there are still some places out there that are really wild. They are near pristine. On land, there are some places in the heart of the tropical forest of Africa and South America, for example. In the ocean, there are remote places that are still look like the ocean of a thousand years ago. And I have seen a few of these. You know, with our Pristine Seas project, we have been exploring, surveying, documenting some of these last wild places. And life is so spectacular. You jump in the water, and as soon as your bubbles clear, you are surrounded by a dozen sharks. You know, that tells you that the place is really, really healthy. So the fact that these places are there are not only a good time machine, right? Travel to the past and show us what the ocean used to be like, but also it shows what the potential is. The other thing that really gives me hope is protected areas mm. that were fully protected from fishing, drilling, mining, and other damaging activities. And I have seen marine life come back spectacularly. Mm. Within three, five years, you already see a significant increase in marine life. And of course, sharks that live 25 years, groupers that live 40 years are going to take longer to reach those high abundance levels. But there are many species that respond r very rapidly. Yeah, let's let's talk about sharks because I think sharks and wolves are these kind of good species that the average person is is afraid of because of you know, media, whatever, you know, I'm, I'm from San Diego. So I've swam with the, you know, the sharks in La Jolla and, you know, you feel kind of afraid at first, but then once you're with them, you realize they're just like big dogs. You know, how are these predators actually really important for conserving nature? Oh, I'm glad to hear that you were swimming with those leopard sharks in the, on the beach in, of La Jolla. Oh yeah. Their migration's amazing. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Sharks in the ocean are like the keystone if you think of an architectural arch, they are the stone at the top of the arch. That's what keeps the arch in, in place. If you remove that keystone, the whole arch collapses. These top predators keep the ecosystem 
imbalance. If you remove sharks from a reef, this is the first step in a series of effects that will degrade the ecosystem. And, you know, the Japanese, for example, thought that or argued that we have to kill whales in around Antarctica and the Southern Ocean because they eat our krill and our fish. But what happened? After they started killing whales industrially, the krill also went down. Mm. Why? Because the whales, they eat, many of them, they eat at depth and they bring the nutrients back to the surface. So the whales poop some of the iron to shallow waters to help fertilize these waters. Iron is a key nutrient for the growth of the microscopic algae that are the base of the food chain in the open ocean. Mm. So you have more iron, then you have all these microscopic algae blooming. And what is this microscopic algae? The krill. Mm. So it's not that you remove the predator and then you have lots of prey. In most cases, it's the predators create the conditions so that more species can thrive, even though the predators eat more of them, because we have more of everything. Right. Mm. Think of the predators as a nuisance and calling for killing them is living in a world and a mental world of scarcity. But we can coexist in a world with all, all those species. You mentioned whale poop, and I just want to go back to that. I think a lot of people you know, don't realize in the ocean, it's just, it is similar to land, but it is very different, right? Because the way plankton grows, the, the nutrients aren't quite the same. And you talk about plankton in your book, plants basically that depend on, you know, whale poop or fish poop or otherwise nutrients in the water. Like what should the average person feel about phytoplankton? Yes. Instead of having an altar to deities or to the dollar, everybody at home should have a shrine on plankton, especially the, what we call the phytoplankton, the, the microscopic algae and bacteria of the ocean, because without them, there would be no us. The oxygen that we can breathe now in the atmosphere has been released by the patient work of very, very small bacteria, microbes, and microscopic algae in the ocean for hundreds of millions of years. People don't know what it is. People don't like plankton because they like when they go to the beach in the summer, they like to swim in clear waters. And when there is a lot of plankton, the water tends to become green because plankton, they do photosynthesis like the plants on the land and they capture CO2, the carbon dioxide from the water and the atmosphere and they produce oxygen and they produce food for other creatures to eat also. And wow, shouldn't we be grateful? <laughs> so hmm. we didn't know probably one of the most important species on the planet that keeps us alive, that produces a lot of the oxygen that we breathe until 30 years ago when the technology got good enough. So that's what I want people to know. I want to share that sense of awe and wonder that I feel every time I see a species doing something. All these species are working and we benefit from their work and we don't have to pay for it. You know, we take all these things for granted, but even if we had industrial capacity to produce all the oxygen that is in the atmosphere, it would cost about 4,000 times the global GDP, the global economic production to produce that. So we're not going to do that. We're not going to replace plankton anytime soon. We cannot replace, basically, we cannot replace any other species. You see these crazy schemes with using now little bee robots to pollinate crops. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? Really? You can do that at the scale at which bees are doing it? It's totally ludicrous. People are going nuts. It, it, it's, it's ridiculous. We cannot replace the work that any other species, that species does in the planet. 
I'm, I'm ready to start the church of the plankton. You know, I think I'm going to go home and set up a little shrine for myself. I never thought of that before. As you were speaking, it occurred to me that we should be very, very grateful. We should have a little prayer, a little offering to the plankton. <laughs> I'll tell you something else weird. In high school, Scripps had this thing called the National Ocean Sciences Bowl. So I was very interested in like this ocean quiz show and I was the team captain. Anyway, I had this project where we had to do like an advocacy campaign and I chose plankton. So we made this, these t-shirts that said, save the plankton. I can't find the t-shirts regrettably, but this was, I was apparently ahead of my time. You know, this was when I was in high school. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to take a quick break from Plankton Church. While we're on our break, why don't you check out Dr. Sala's new book? It's called The Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild, published by National Geographic, and it comes out August 25th. So while I'm talking, open your phone, open your device, go pre-order that book. You want it? Give it as a gift. It's just Christmas time. It's a great present. Send me one. Speaking of books and writing, we have a newsletter called Waste Not a Newsletter on Substack. And on that newsletter, normally it's just me and you, Chen, writing it. But guess what? We have someone new joining our team, a real researcher named Alicia. That's right. She is a conservationist, environmental justice advocate, and... She's going to be a researcher, helping us out mostly on the newsletter to start. If you hate Facebook, the newsletter is a great choice. Sign up to Waste Not a Newsletter at wastenotwhynot.substack.com. What a break. That was amazing. That was a great ad from our advertiser, which is also the newsletter of the show. All right. And now we're back. In the second half, we're talking with Dr. Sala about marine protected areas, bottom trawling, industrial fishing, and most importantly, what we can do to protect our world's ocean. I mean, you know, when you grow up in San Diego, it's easy to love the ocean because you grow up, you see it, you go to Scripps, there's the aquarium, there's the zoo, there's all this natural connection for you. For people who don't grow up in that environment, you know, how do we get people to kind of switch on to care about the environment? What's, what's worked for you? It is very difficult, right? Because everybody has daily anxieties and daily preoccupations. We have worked with communities and governments to create marine protected areas, national parks in the ocean all over the world. And for the local fishermen, it is the sustainability of their livelihood that they care about. Hmm. For politicians, sometimes it's the economic argument. For citizens, you know, there is always an incentive there. Everybody needs to feel that there's something for for them in it, except for us crazy conservationists who (laughs) we care more about the rest of life on the planet than than, than ourselves. Yeah, I'm building the Church of Plankton over here. I don't, you know. I love it. I'm going to be the first worshiper (laughs) to your shrine. Yeah. So so you're saying um, it depends basically on on who your audience is, you know, and and I hear a lot there's this conflict between protected areas and fishermen. But, you know, you've been working with pristine seas. You've been setting up these very large marine reserves, you know, in general, what are some things, how do they view being told not to fish in a certain area anymore? Well, that's the thing that, you know, there is a myth that wants to be perpetuated by the industrial fishing lobby (laughs) in the same way that the uh, tobacco industry before and now the fossil fuel industry wants us to believe in some myths, right? To perpetuate their their existence and their their profits. There is this myth that conservation goes against fishermen Mm. against the hardworking people who live on the coastal areas. This is nothing farther from the truth because the big problem, the main threat to the livelihoods of fishermen is too much fishing. Mm. It's overfishing. 
if I can just mention a few numbers, because of course, you know, being a scientist, I have to mention some numbers here. We love numbers. Give us some numbers. So global catch of fish in the ocean peaked in 1996 and started declining since. Even though more effort has been applied to fishing, more hours mm. have been spent out there fishing, but the catch has been declining, right? That is indicative of global depletion. Mm. And indeed, about two thirds of the fish stocks are experiencing what we call overfishing, which means that we are taking fish out of the water faster than they can reproduce. So is this decline caused because there are too many protected areas? Well, today, only two and a half percent of the ocean is fully protected from fishing. Hmm. So more than 97% of the ocean is open to fishing. I don't think this is the, the, the problem, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't think just 2% of, for the ocean is enough. That doesn't sound fair. At least half, right? I mean... Exactly. People, some people ask, well, we need a balance between conservation and extraction. I said, absolutely, let's have a balance. Let's have 50-50. <laughs> because right now it's completely biased towards exploitation, unfortunately, mm -hmm. towards over-exploitation. There are a few fisheries that are well managed, yes, but most of them are being depleted. What we have seen is that this 97% of the ocean is like a bank account, your checking account, where everybody withdraws money, but nobody puts money in. You don't need to be a banker to know what's going to happen to your bank account. You're going to go bankrupt. Yeah. Right? Crazy overdraft fees. Yeah. Crazy overdraft. And yeah, you don't need to get a Nobel Prize in economics to figure out that this is not a smart <laughs> thing to do. Now, these two and a half percent that is fully protected, these no-take areas, are like investment accounts where we have a principle that we don't touch and it produces returns, right? But the principle itself grows. We have seen the abundance of fish increase on average six times inside these no-take areas, wow. six times. So it's like compound interest and it produces returns. And we know from very basic finance for the same interest rate, the larger the principle, the larger the returns. The math is not so complicated, right? <laughs> So the same thing is happening in the ocean. We see that when we protect areas, there are so many fish in them, they grow larger. They produce mm. a disproportionately larger number of eggs. So they help to replenish the areas around. And we have seen the catch, the catch per unit effort, the fisherman income increase around these areas. Right? So these areas are actually part of the solution for fishing. If we continue the way we're doing, Studies suggest that by 2050, most fisheries will have collapsed. That's, that's pretty soon. It's 30 years from now. It's nothing in, in human history. So we do need to reduce fishing effort to help the fish, give the fish a break. But also we need these areas that are not areas where we exclude humans from. These are not, these are not areas that go against people. These are areas that will help to regenerate the ocean so people can continue living off it. Mm. There you go. That's my debunking the myth that the industrial fishing lobby wants to perpetuate. We love debunking myths. That was well debunked. I'm a big fan of marine protected areas. And you mentioned industrialized fishing. It's not like hook and line fishing, right? I mean, these aren't just a boat with like 50 guys all with fishing rods. You know, is there a type of fishing that's particularly bad for the ocean? Absolutely. The worst of all is bottom trolling. Mm. These big nets with these metal doors on each side that scrape the bottom of the ocean to catch shrimp, usually, or fish, and they destroy everything along their path. In the past, in the 15th century England, the king signed an order limiting the use of bottom trolling then because it was so damaging. 
imagine today's super trollers, super trollers, these are boats that are 120 meters long. 360 feet long. These are like three soccer fields. Wow. Their nets are so huge that they can fit 12 747 jets in them, which is the second largest commercial airplane in the world. That's a lot. It takes only one pass of that net to destroy deep corals that are have been growing for thousands of years. In minutes, we destroy the growth of nature it would be like going with these massive nets and destroying the redwood forests of California, you know, which had been growing for thousands of years. Destroy them within minutes. It would be worse than burning like a Notre Dame every day, or eradicating thousands of years of history just instantly. Much older, much older yeah. than that. Yeah. Yeah. And so large marine protected areas work, basically. What has been some of the biggest achievements that you've seen doing this work? When we started, less than 1% of the ocean was under some kind of protection, and only 0.1% of the ocean was fully protected. And thanks to the work of governments and many other organizations alongside Pristine Seas in the last 12, 15 years, we've been able to go from 0.1% to 2.5% of the ocean fully protected, from less than 1% to 7% of the ocean under some level of protection. Wow. That's been an incredible progress. However, it is not enough because what the science is telling us is that half that you were talking about before, if we want to prevent the extinction of a million species and the collapse of our life support system, we need half of the planet in natural state. And we can start by committing to protect 30% of the planet, at least 30% of the planet by 2030. And this is something that can be decided next year. In May, in Kunming, China, 196 countries are going to meet under the auspices of the UN Convention on Biodiversity. Mm. This is like the nature sister convention of the climate convention. Right. The Kunming meeting is going to be as critical as the Paris Climate uh, Summit in 2015, because this is the time and the place where the world is going to agree on how much more space we are willing to give to nature. And this is why we are pushing on this 30% target that is what the science is telling us. Okay, 30% protection by 2030. I think that's easy to remember. What do you usually tell people to do? Because people always ask, you know, you talk about the ocean, you talk about plankton, and it feels abstract to a lot of people. They want to be able to do something in their own life that can then benefit the ocean. We could spend one hour just talking about all the things that people could do. Right. We could produce the laundry list of actions <laughs> for the planet. But I usually talk about two, two main ones. One is, you mentioned that, vote. Especially now here in the United States. Yes. <laughs> this key that people vote. If you want a planet with clean water, clean air, where your kids are not going to be sick because they are outside. If you want wild spaces where you can restore yourself, if you want an ocean full of life, then vote for those leaders who agree to those values. That's all I'm going to say about that, right? But you have to vote. And the second one is something that it's very simple. Everybody can do it every day, which is eat more plants and less animals. A plant-based mm. diet is good for you and is good for the planet. People are eating too much meat in the global north 
in the United States, people are definitely eating too much meat. Our body cannot absorb all the protein. And also we can get all the proteins, micronutrients, calories that we need from plants. Even if you are a bodybuilder, you can get all the stuff you need from plants. And some people say, well, I want to be strong as a bull. You know, I need to eat meat. Well, what do bulls eat? Grass. <laughs> yeah. We can have a pretty yummy diet with healthy local food based on plants. And also that would help reduce the footprint of livestock because right now in the United States, for example, 40% of the land in the United States is dedicated to raise livestock. 40% of the land, almost half of the land is dedicated to livestock. And livestock is one of the biggest contributors to global warming because they burn huge amounts of methane. It sounds funny and kind of a joke, but it is so serious. And also, if we didn't have all that land dedicated to raise just one species of, of mammal, cows, then we would have much more space for nature, which then could produce many more things for us, many more things. It could be, you know, if you have forest or natural grasslands, they retain rainwater, they can help us prevent floods, which are going to become more prevalent. We already see huge extreme weather events, right? they would provide the habitat for many, many more species, including some of the pollinators that pollinate our crops. And also, instead of just throwing soil away, which is what happens in these overgrazed rangelands or former forests, those places could continue building soil, which in turn absorbs huge amounts of carbon, which would help us mitigate climate change. So that's why, you know, eat more plants, less animals. That would be my advice number one for people's daily actions. Yeah, you had one statistic in the book that I was uh, telling Yu Chen, and he had a like a horrified face when I told him that by biomass, seventy percent of birds on Earth are just you know poultry for human consumption. You know, ninety percent of all mammals are just humans and the animals that we eat. This wild biomass is really just so small. But what you're saying is that you know if we eat more plant based, if we protect these wild places that, that it can come back and that there is, there is hope, you know, not everything is, is lost. Sometimes I do this show and just the work I do, you know, you kind of slide into a not so happy place. How do you, how do you pull yourself out of it? How do you, how do you stay motivated to, to work all this time? Because I have seen nature come back in these places, you know, we dive in places all around the world and I have been in places that after protection, they have returned. And also, some countries are already doing it. Some countries have protected more than 30% of their land or their seas. Mm. And some of these are Bhutan, Costa Rica, Palau, Chile. You know, some of these are small island nations in the middle of the South Pacific. Some of these nations depend on their natural environment for their living, depend on, on fishing around them. Yet, they understood that without significant amounts of protection, there is no future mm. to their livelihood. So if these countries have been visionary enough to get to that at least 30% that we need of protection alongside other measures, I think that the rest of the world can follow their example. So that's what gives me hope, to see nature coming back when we give her space and also to see nations responding to the current crisis and setting the path forward. So there's plenty to be hopeful about. Okay, I mean, I think it was great that you could, you know, put tough environmental issues into into context and language that makes sense. I, I could I could hear, you know, the science academia themes in the background, and I saw you keep it keep it light, keep it accessible. And so, uh, so thank you for that, Dr. Sala. Your book coming out, Nature of Nature. It's August 25th. August 25th. Okay. Pre-order it online where books are sold. Okay, great, great tagline. 
Okay, thank you so much and um, see you next time. I'm Nature Nate, and this has been the Waste Not, Why Not podcast, recorded at Future Award, a co-working space in Taipei, Taiwan. Do you have a question for us? Tweet them at us. We are Waste Not Pod on Twitter. Our DMs are open. Seriously, talk to us on Twitter. It's not me. It's actually Yu Chen. So if I respond to the Twitter, I'm talking to him. And you, you don't have to be creeped out by that. Subscribe to our newsletter on Substack. We've mentioned that a lot, where our researcher Alicia and I talk about environmental news and the latest updates about what's going on behind the scenes of the show. If you hate Facebook, the newsletter is a great choice. Sign up to Waste Not a Newsletter at wastenotwhynot.substack.com. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever. Give us a good rating to let us know you really care about the environment, because if you don't rate it, I know you don't care. And I really hope that Enrique Sala did not listen this far in the show because it's going to just sound weird. This has been a Ghost Island Media production. This episode was produced by Yu Chen Lai, myself, Nature Nate. Our executive producer is Emily Y. Wu, edited by Yu Chen Lai. Brandon Sam by Thomas Lee. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Nate. And I will come as soon as possible to pray in your <laughs> temple of plankton. I, I will I will build it. You will come if I build it, right? Okay, I, I have to build it now. Build it and they will come. Yeah, all reclaimed materials though. Well, nothing new. Don't worry. It'll be a sustainable shrine. You're the man. <laughs> <laughs>